0: We're going to um, continue here into a different text. We're not, I haven't quite settled on which book of the Bible I'm wanting to go through. Brittany and I were talking about this, and I was like, well, I really want to do this book and study and walk through this, Uh, but then I want to do this one, and there's about five or six that I would really love to do. And then, of course, Brittany, being smarter than me, says, well, you're not going to choose a wrong book of the Bible. It's not as if you're going to be preaching through something that's not from the Bible. So there's the encouragement with that. Um, I think I'm narrowing it down to two. I'm not going to tell you because it might not even be one of those two, and then you'll judge me for that later. Um, But this morning, we're going to examine a very, very familiar passage where at least one or two of these verses are very, very familiar, but it is so crucial for us to not only have a right understanding, but once again, as we did last week, to be reminded Of these truths. A lot of times it's not as if we don't know something is true. Um, I I use my kids as illustrations a lot because that's just the stage of life where I'm learning so much about who God is and about the Bible and about all of these things being true because of my children. Um, My kids know the difference between right and wrong, they know what is true about good and bad, they know the rules, they know and understand all of these things. It's not that they didn't know that they shouldn't throw things into the neighbor's yard or that they didn't know that they shouldn't kick their baby brother, right? I know some of you guys are like, no way Maddie and Benji would kick Judah. Yes. Maddie at times thinks that Judah is a horse or a dog. Um, He's eight months old. He is neither of those things. But yet Maddie is Maddie and just doesn't quite understand those things. Um, so oftentimes in the Christian life, it's not that we don't know what is true. It's that sometimes we forget, or the the lack of the constant remembrance causes us to move away from it. Uh, but this morning, we're going to be in James chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 14 through 26. Uh, these familiar verses that we're going to be looking at, you're going to find uh in verse 17 but we're going to look kind of at this whole context we're going to try to move along throughout here but i want us to see what it is that james is portraying again this is a familiar passage but i would like to encourage and ask that even though it's familiar that we don't just assume uh well i already understand that and so i can just tune out for the next however many number of minutes um look at this text See what it is that God is clearly communicating through this, through the human author of James by the Spirit, and really examining ourselves this morning. But again, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. In the first six or seven verses, we're going to be seeing faith that is dead. And in the closing verses, 21 through 26, faith that is alive. Because there is not just the understanding of faith, and we all understand exactly what that means. Um Common illustration, all of you had faith that those chairs were actually going to work this morning when you sat down. Um, Some of you, my my cynics and my skeptics, probably like, well, I usually trust in chairs, but I've been fooled before. So you may have examined your chair each and every time. Or you have faith that your car is going to start. Or maybe, depending on the car you have, you don't really have any faith it's going to start. But when it does, you are rejoicing and absolutely overjoyed with it. Because, yes, it turned on because I hit the steering wheel so hard. Right? A lot of us have been in those situations. Okay? Maybe just me. Never mind. But we're going to see these things. We're going to contrast dead faith with faith that is alive because not all faith is universal. It's not all the same, and there's incredible distinction that the author here is going to make in James chapter 2. And he's going to begin by answering a critical question which is found in verse 14. He starts off And he's just talked about favoritism, of not showing uh, favoritism to those who are rich as opposed to those who are poor. Don't favor uh, the well-dressed man or woman over the one who isn't as well-dressed. That there's not supposed to be this kind of uh, favoritism in these things and judgment. But he gets into verse 14 and he asks, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? So here he immediately enters into this question, Of what good is it for a man who has faith but does not have any works? Is that faith one which can save him? This is an absolutely critical question for Christians to answer as well as for those who who are apart from Christ. We we understand this relationship, and I think that this morning, uh, my goal is to present a a well-balanced, because so often, whether it was a study in Colossians, whether it was in years past in a study of Galatians, so much talking about it is not by works, right? That's what in this church, between previous pastors as well, the consistent theme of salvation is not by works, which is absolutely, absolutely true. You are not saved by your works. There's a couple phrases I'm going to repeat throughout this morning, and that is one of them. Salvation does not come through works, But this is a very, very interesting question that he is sending forth. What good is it, my brethren, that a man would say that he has faith, but has no works? Is that a faith which can save him? We're going to see these different relationships. And again, some of you may have said, well, he's going to talk about faith and works. I know that and just kind of tune out. But again, I would plead with you, please do not do that. This is not a challenge to the doctrine that we see in Ephesians 2 of salvation by grace through faith. Instead, what James is doing is challenging that a claim to faith is a, of a mere uh, profession of faith being superseded and supreme in these things. He, he's not saying in any way that salvation is not by grace through faith. This is absolutely true. Paul is very clear about these things. But instead, he's challenging the, that a claim to faith without practice is one which can save uh, one of the key words here in verse 14 is says right so you're looking in the bible says what doth it profit my brethren though a man say he hath faith or claims that he has faith this is an incredible key word as he is addressing a very particular question in a very particular situation of the man who says well i have faith isn't that simply enough do i even need to have any works can't just my faith alone save me? And James here is asking this very important question. In the Sunday school, we, we, I mentioned how so many times people say words, but we don't really know what words mean anymore, right? You're not allowed to have a word mean what it's supposed to mean. It's supposed to be subjective. To where if someone says, Faith. If we were to poll everybody here, I am sure we would get a large amount of definitions, and even some that would say, well, you know, that's what you believe faith is. I think it's this, and we can both be right. Words have to have a meaning, or else all words are meaningless. If words don't mean anything, then there is no truth. And Imagine writing a letter to a person, and when upon receiving that letter, they say, okay, I see the words that you wrote, but I think it means this. You're writing and saying, baby, I love you so much. Like, I just love you. Your eyes are like deep pools of water, and her eyes are brown, right? It doesn't make sense. But imagine now receiving a letter where the author of the letter is intending a very particular message, and you're saying, oh, my eyes are like deep pools of water. He's saying I have huge eyes. Like, I have big bug eyes, and I, like all these different things you're going, well, maybe this actually means that he doesn't love me. Like, imagine we're twisting the message as opposed to seeing what was intended, But here, James is addressing a very particular pastoral concern on understanding the critical nature of saving faith. So here he asks the question, one that I would encourage all of us to ask this morning. What does it profit, my brothers, though a man would claim or say that he has faith, but yet has not works? Can that faith save him? Is that enough for true, genuine, authentic, saving faith of simply claiming to have faith, but yet having nothing to show for it? Is that a faith which can save? And so here we're going to answer this question as we study through James. Uh, before we get into too deep, let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you have extended uh, grace and, and mercy to each and every one of us. I pray this morning as we examine what what is written here in James chapter 2, that as we see the contrast of faith and works and the role that each has in in salvation and the essential uh, need to rightly understand these things, I pray that we would continue uh, to see you for who you are, to understand the nature of the salvation and the redemption that is offered through the blood of your Son. God, I pray that we would uh, come away this morning with a, a high view of who you are, a right understanding of who you are, and that we would continue to grow in our affection for you each and every day as we study your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here are the words that James is going to outline in this chapter. is echoing the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 7. Flip over. There's going to be a few times we're going to flip. So make sure you have all a couple of your fingers ready. Or maybe have a teammate help you out. Uh, but flip over to Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to look at verses 15 through 20. So here in Matthew chapter 7, these are the words which Christ is speaking, and and he's discussing things that are very similar. And he starts off in this portion, after talking about the gate being narrow and wide, he enters into this warning in verse 15 about false prophets. He says, "'Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits.'" So here as he enters into this, he's portraying these false prophets and saying, beware of them. They're doing these things outwardly and all of this. But yes, they come in the sheep's clothing, but inwardly, what are they? Ravening wolves. This is completely opposite of coming in sheep's clothing. This is an incredible distinction here that's being made. In verse 16, he says, you shall know them by their fruits. And then again, he echoes that sentiment in verse 20. Wherefore, by their fruits... You shall know them. Well, then, how are we to understand faith and works? We see here that good works are fruit of the tree. The works are the fruit which is produced out of the condition of the tree. Um, This is what he's making very, very clear. The good tree is going to bring forth good fruit, a corrupt tree is bringing forth evil fruit. Now, I know some of you are saying, hey, that just makes a lot of sense, right? simple. He's speaking very uh, simply here and that's what he is seeking to do is clearly communicate these things. But here we see in light of what James is saying, he's hearkening back to Christ's words in Matthew 7 showing that good work, he's going to show that good works are the fruit of the tree. Uh, look at these next couple of verses 21 through23, "Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven." Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. We all must examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Here Christ is bringing forth these words, talking about the good tree and the bad tree, allowing us to understand and to examine ourselves. Are we a tree which is bringing forth good fruit? Or are we a tree which is bringing forth bad fruit? Or even yet, are you a tree which would bring forth absolutely no fruit? is it a dead, a barren tree with nothing to show for it? Does a good tree yield absolutely no fruit? Does a good tree yield forth bad fruit? This is a absolutely critical examination here that James is trying to make, that Paul makes in Galatians 5, that he makes in Romans chapter 4, that we see in Ephesians chapter 2. All throughout Scripture, we in first, read 1 first John if you want an honest examination of our faith and a testing of it. All of the Bible and all of the New Testament so often is saying to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. This is not just to cast a doubt and just so that pastors can get up and say, See, your faith probably isn't genuine, so get it right. This is not the sense of of Paul or other New Testament authors seeking to say, See, we just want to tell everybody that their faith isn't true and that it isn't genuine and they have to do more. But it is such a genuine concern, a pastoral concern from Paul, this concern from James, that it is so critical that we get the answer to this question right. Right? Is your faith genuine? Is it saving faith? Or is it intellectual assent to, yeah, I believe that God is real. So many people believe that there is a God. That's just those that would say, well, I'm kind of agnostic. I don't even really know what I believe for sure, but I do probably believe that there probably is a God. That's likely. Is that saving faith? How many Mormons Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists claim to have faith in what they know in their bones is absolutely something that is to be true. They say, well, I have faith that these things are true. Is that saving faith in light of what we see here in the Word of God? Trusting in a God that is not the God of the Bible? Absolutely not. So when we have conversations with those and they say, well, yeah, I have faith, I believe in God, That is not an end to the conversation of saying, oh, so we're the same. You ask questions and say, okay, faith in who? What do you have faith in? Some people have faith in good karma. Some people have faith in themselves or in another person or just that things are going to be good. Faith is universal across all different areas. Everybody has faith in something. There is not a single person that has no belief in anything. Because even then, they're trusting their own knowledge, right? Saying there is absolutely no God takes an incredible amount of faith, assuming the position that you know 100% of all that there is to know. The atheist has an incredible amount of faith that they're taking that there's nothing they could ever learn. Because the atheist claims, I know with certainty that there is absolutely no God, saying that they have 100% of the possible knowledge in the world. Because if they admit that they only have, let's say, 20%, which, by the way, not even close, is it possible that God could exist in that 80% that you don't know? Let's say you know 99% of what is possible to have known in the world from all time. Is it possible that God could exist in that 1%? And even logically, it's, yeah, it's possible. The atheist position is incredibly illogical. It's incredibly illogical but they have faith in their own understanding and in their own wisdom. But here, James is going to ask this question. What good is it to have a faith that does not have works? Is that faith which can save? And then he's going, and Then you see back in what Christ is saying, the good tree is going to bring forth good fruit. Simply claiming to have faith without the fruit that faith will bring should cast doubt examine yourself and say okay I have claimed to have faith but I'm looking now and I'm looking for fruit and guess what this tree is incredibly barren people will look at my life and say there is absolutely no fruit coming forth from this tree but I claim to have faith well I've been told that all I have to do is just have faith that these things that is true and just simply a acknowledgment of these things to be true again the intellectual uh, belief and, and assent that god probably does exist you can look around and say yeah look outside we live in a beautiful place god someone probably did create these things but does that save you by saying there's probably a creator it is so much more than just an intellectual knowledge or awareness that there is a god this is something that requires absolutely critical Examination. And examining a text like this, of saying, to examine yourself of your faith, see if it is genuine. We know biblically that your faith is going to be tested. Right? We know this. Through suffering, through trials, all of these things, the patience, the endurance, the perseverance, all of these things are going to come out through testing. And this is not a text, which is often misused, to say, for pastors who come along and they say, well, I just want people to doubt their salvation. I just want people to know that it has to be this way, and I want them to just get it right. This is a genuine concern, both on the part of Paul in previous chapters and the, the epistles that he wrote and out of James, because as a pastor and, and as a loving brother in Christ, it is so important that we do understand what saving faith actually is, and we know what it is not. How horrible it would be to shy away from an honest examination or an encouragement to examine yourself because I don't want people to, to wrestle with things. I don't, I don't want them to feel like maybe they have to test their faith. How dangerous is it to believe that merely a profession of an intellectual faith, that yes, there probably is a God and he probably created everything and he probably did some of these historical things. How dangerous it would be to think that just a simple profession of these things, purely intellectual, would be a faith that is going to save that person. We wonder so many times, why is it that churches can be so often filled with hypocrites, false converts? Why is it that so many uh, profess, to claim, profess and claim to have been saved by the blood of Christ? right, Washed in the blood of the Lamb. Washed in all of these things. They claim these things. But then a month later they're gone. Never to be seen again. Never to be part of a church, never to to join together, never to have studied the Bible, never to have prayed, never to have done any of these things. Because intellectually they said, yeah, I'm going to try this thing out. God probably does exist. But there's so much more than just saying, yeah, there probably is a God. Professing faith, and we're going to see this throughout the text, is far different, while critical, is different than possessing faith. There's a huge difference between pro- profession and possession. Now, getting in my Baptist shoes by doing the double P's there, you guys should be proud of me for that. Okay? Didn't take a lot of work. I stole it. But it is so critical that we do not allow an understanding of all you have to do is just say that God created everything and that that God is, is Lord because people could just say, okay, well then I'm just going to say these things and then I can move on, live my life the rest of the way that I want to, right? No. How many of us would, would say to the per- would say that genuine faith is a person who says, oh, so the Bible says that I just have to confess that Jesus is Lord? Okay, Jesus is Lord. Boom, off on my way to sin forevermore. Who here says that is true, authentic, biblical, genuine faith? Right, because that too is illogical. We would, no one would ever claim and to believe that here. That's why Paul is careful in Romans 6 of where sin is, grace abounds even more. Okay. Now, in case you're going to stretch that out and say, so then can't I just I just want a whole lot of grace, so I need to sin a lot so that more and more grace is poured out. And he says, by no means, God forbid, that that would ever be the case. You do not continue in sin for grace to abound. I know that's a lot here just in verse 14. But it is so important that we understand and we get these things right. And we're going to continue to do so as he's going to explain this. Verses 15 and 16, James is going to use an illustration to highlight these things. Answering the question, starting in 15, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Here he's saying, you come along a brother or a sister who is naked, who is without clothes, who is in great need of food, who is starving, who is absolutely hungry, and your response is simply, well, just go in peace. Be warm. Be full. Be fed. Yet doing absolutely nothing to have actually helped the person. You've shown forth nothing in that way. What is it to profit that person? Quite simply, the answer is nothing. Nothing. Uh, there there's a book a while back called The Secret, right? That the secret to life is just positive imagery. Thinking things into existence. That if you think it, then it will be. This is the same idea as the name it and claim it now in prosperity gospel is if you just believe that God is going to give you an immense amount of wealth and cars and all of these things, then you can speak that into existence. I'm still looking for the promise of, of a car and a house, and wealth, and all of these things biblically. If you guys are aware of that, please find that text for me. Um, I see the promises of suffering, of having to endure, of persevering to the end, of fighting, of battling. No promise of anything other than that, as well as possible imprisonment, beating, persecution. But think about this even just purely in a logical sense. What good have you done for this brother or sister to see them starving in great need of food and great need of clothes and you're saying, well, just go get warm. What have you done for that person? And not even just nothing. You've probably made that situation a whole lot worse of saying, well, then be full. He says, what good... Is this faith? What profit is it? It is absolutely none. It is no good. Unless action is following the understanding, that understanding is entirely empty. Apart from action, the understanding is incredibly empty. Listening must be marked by doing. Like faith is by our works. Our works are an outward response of the faith that we already have. The fruit that comes from the tree is the reflection of the, the goodness and the actual tree that it is. This is why an apple tree isn't going to grow forth peaches. Why? Because it's an apple tree. The fruit is representative of the type of tree that it is. That's my kid. He heard apples and I think he got excited. I'm not going to lie. So what good is a the faith then of a man who comes along and says I have faith but I do not have works is that enough to save me here James is using this illustration in a practical sense to say it is worthless not just worthless look at verse 17 even so faith if it hath not works is dead being alone It's not an acceptable thing to say, yes, you profess to have faith, but there's nothing to show for it. You have no works. You have no desire to live as God has commanded. You have no desire to know Him. You have no desire to love and to serve and to show forth this love that you have for God. It is dead. It is completely alone. Calvin said that we are saved by faith alone and justified by faith alone. But here's the thing. That's my paraphrase there. Faith is never alone. Works are the natural accompaniment to the faith that we have received. It is the result of it. It's not enough to just claim that we have faith and say that I believe in God generally. I believe in God. That's not enough. It is absolutely not enough to just be able to define all of the Christian terms, to be able to say, well, I could explain, I can define what justification is. I can define uh, sanctification. I can define all these different things. I can name the 12 tribes of Israel. I can, and we list off all of these different things, and we say, you can know all of those things, but be absolutely far removed in your heart from who God is. I mean, the countless passages in Matthew, in Mark, uh, of John, and so many of these similar situations. And we even looked at it um, last week in Isaiah of, they praise me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. There are so many people, and I, it was so discouraging throughout all the different studies that I've had to do of reading scholars, biblical scholars, training and teaching in seminaries and scholarship and authors and all these different things that are writing about the things of God, but yet do not know Him or love Him. It is as if the Bible is this incredible textbook that they can just mechanically look at and they can define these things and they can make it some wonderful thing of scholarship but it has no spirit behind it. It has nothing to do with who God is, what Christ has done, and giving any glory to God. It is how can I parse out these different words? How can I create a system about this? How can I fill my pages? And it is so discouraging when that becomes the case. Do a study in the time of Christ in his ministry when he says to a person, your faith has saved you. When he uses an illustration in this way, when he communicates that, look at the situation, look at the context of what is going on there. This is not just a person that says, I believe because of what I've seen. In every case where Christ has said, by this your faith has saved you, or by this you have been saved, however the phrasing you want to go, it is always when action has followed their belief. Of the man lowered in through the roof. He's talking about the faith here. The faith of you unifying with the group has saved you. Why? Because they did something. And when Christ says you have been saved, rest assured you are completely and totally saved. Imagine the assurance of those people. This person we believe to be the Messiah, that we've shown forth our faith in our actions, has just said to me, physically and audibly, you are saved. You think that would remove any doubt that you would ever have, knowing specifically that he has told you that in person? What an incredible thing that would have been. It is always to the one whose faith was demonstrated in action. Verse 17 again, faith without works is dead. The person who professes faith, he has no desire to know the word of God, to praise him in worship, to commune in fellowship with God's people. Has a faith which desperately needs examination. These works, these things that it is that we do, the things that we are to be, is a natural response of the heart that has been redeemed in worshiping God. This is not a—it's not just a duty of reading your Bible, of communing with people in the body of Christ, of being a part of a church. It's not just a duty to sing songs of praise and to rightly uh, praise God for who He is. It should be an absolute delight for each and every one who has been redeemed by the blood of the cross. It should be a delight, something that we are joyful to do. We are privileged the opportunity to praise and to worship God. This is not a, all right, since people know that I've claimed to be a Christian, I have all my life, I have to make sure that I read my Bible begrudgingly, and I have to uh, sing these couple hymns just because I have to, and I have to go to church because I have to. And it's this yoke and this burden of things. That's not what it's to be. It's a delight that we love joining together. That we delight in it. That we delight in reading his word. We delight in singing songs of praise. Why? Because we are worshiping our Lord, our master, and our creator. James is saying that faith which simply stops at profession is absolutely dead. This is not just sick and need of help. It is dead because it cannot do anything. It is dead. So there are those that say that they've tried Christianity and it didn't work, right? Well, okay, here's some of these things that may be true. I'm going to try being a Christian. So I'm just going to say that, that God is God, Christ is Christ. He did these things. I'm just going to say it, and we're going to give it a shot. We're going to try it. How well is that going to work? Christianity is not something to be tried. It's not something that's like a new diet or if you're trying yoga or whatever it is that you might want to do, right? I'm going to stop eating sweets and desserts. Okay, call me in a week. Skittles are delicious, I get it, right? You guys, when I talked about cake last week, you guys understand. This is not, Christianity is not something that's just to be tried, but something to be absolutely trusted. This was the great danger of false converts, of those who go forward and say, well, I'm just going to try this out because I really need to fix things in my life. That's not what it is. This is this easy believism that's so often preached of, all you have to do is just say something and everything is changed. Yet there is no true conversion, there is no regeneration, there is no repentance, there is none of the actual hallmarks of genuine faith. We look at Ephesians chapter 2, again, a text that many of us have likely memorized at some point in our lives, and we usually memorize it up in chapter 2 through verses 8 and 9, but let's just see this very clearly. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and not that of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So we see there. Faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now stop there for a moment. This is usually where we stop in our memorization and our understanding here. Compare that with what James is saying. Faith without works is dead. This is not to elevate works to some place of now you are um, saved by your works, but saying these are, this will always accompany true, authentic, saving faith. He, he's not in argument with Paul writing to the Ephesians, Your salvation is not by your works, so no man should boast in it. However, continue into verse 10. This is why it's so important that we understand context, that we understand the whole of Scripture, not just soundbiting a few different verses along the way. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them good works are not a bad thing. These are not things that we are to avoid and to say, well, I'm saved, by, I'm saved by faith, so I don't want to have any part of that works business. This is not on the other side of the person who says, well, I'm just really wanting to dive into my works, and some people are faith people, some people are works people, and we just kind of need to leave us alone. They absolutely cannot be separated. Works are not going to save you. Absolutely not. That's the whole of the Bible. Let me make that very, very clear. Your works alone are not going to save you. A pure intellectual faith that says, "I believe that there is a God does not save you. That is not authentic, genuine faith. We're not justified by the result of our good works, but we're justified but justification results in those good works. That's the end of the equation. Verse 18, he continues on, he's going to to answer as many biblical authors do, this imaginary objector. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Again, this contrast of you have faith, I have works, we're all going to be okay, this acts as if you can actually separate the two being justified before God and continuously being sanctified are absolutely interconnected. They cannot be separated. At the moment of salvation, God begins the working of the Spirit in sanctification, the ongoing process where we are given holiness and we're trying to grow in our holiness by the Spirit. To the objector who says, well, I have faith. I believe that God exists. You can never tell me that I don't have faith because I do believe that God exists. James presents verses 19 and 20. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. Whenever you see something like this, be prepared for the setup. Right? You've ever been in conversations with people or argumentation and they do this subtle little thing and you're like, yeah, you know, that's really good. Kind of in that tone of voice, be ready because you're about to be corrected. Okay? This has happened to me a lot. You believe that there is one God, awesome, you're doing well. The devils also believe, and they tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Saying, yeah, awesome, you believe that there is one God. You are absolutely correct in doing so. But don't you know that the devils and even the demons believe that too? And they are trembling. They shudder at that very fact. Why? Because there's something more that's needed than just an awareness that there is God. They know probably more than a lot of us have, that there is one God. They absolutely know, beyond a shadow of any doubt, they have incredible certainty, the demons and the devil, that there is one God. And that is the entire cause of their fear and their trembling, because they have no doubts that God is real and that He is who He says He is. Do you remember when when Christ is confronting the demons and the response is, wait, why are you here? Are you coming to torment us again? to torment us before you're going to do it later on. like They understand the destiny. They understand the punishment that is going to befall them. And they're upset, saying, why are you here now? You're going to do this later. Did you come to torment and torture us yet again? If you believe that you're going to heaven, that you're going to be saved simply because you believe that God exists, the authority of Scripture clearly says No. Scripture refutes that belief. And again, I take no great joy in saying things that are so clear and that could be so contrary and could cause such a stir in people. There is not some sort of joy of, I just want people to, to really question and to have no under, no actual certainty of these things. But these questions, these examinations, these tests are how we, we result in the affirmation and the assurance of our faith. Because we see this and go, Pastor, it's not just an intellectual thing. I believe, I know who God is. That's what saving faith is. Even the demons believe that there is one God. The demons are perhaps more orthodox than many of us. They are incredibly knowledgeable about who God is. They're incredibly knowledgeable about the Scriptures. They know what's going to happen They absolutely know that it is going to happen. We can look at all the statistics and and see the number of people in polls who have claimed that they possess the Christian faith, right? You you do the polls. Um, A couple years ago, the numbers are about over 70% of people in the United States profess to be Christians, claiming to be Christians. So why are we we at where we're at? 70% of this country is Christian, right? We should be in great shape. Man, every, every uh, official that's ever um, elected in, every vote that's ever cast, 70% of the vote, you're probably going to win most, right? That's how math works. 70% large portion. right? So we should be in great shape. Then why aren't we? Because again, 70% professing to be Christians, I'm not going to say how many are or not, I don't know. But if those things are true, genuine, authentic faith where it has changed you, Is regenerated you. You are then a new creation, not might be a new creation. We've looked at that. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Why is it that new creations are voting like the old one? And this is far more than a political conversation here. This is an understanding that so many claim to be Christians, claim to possess faith in Christ, yet yet they have absolutely nothing nothing to show for it. In fact, fact, they show the the exact opposite. Again, look at the example here. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't do anything for them to help them, what profit is there in that? What type of faith is that? That's a dead faith, a cold, dead, rotting faith, absent of any works to show for it. And this is not to emphasize works. It is to emphasize that works are going to be the outward reflection of the salvation that you have received. There is nothing that is that is going to be the result of these things. And so here, James is not putting an illustration for some sort of uh, social justice where we are just to be doing really good things so that we can fix stuff. Uh, one of my favorite pastors to listen to, his name is Alistair Begg. He, he's talked about this, and he says that... Um, the Bible is not a call, and the Christian faith is not a call for social justice. It's not a call for Christians to be going out, to be solving world hunger. We're not called to fix these things. Our mission as Christians, as, as the church, is not social, it's not political, it's not economic. And it's absolutely astounding in hearing this, because I look around at the culture and go, man, that's kind of all I'm hearing, right? So much of the conversation is, social justice, and and it's all about the economic things that need to be fixed. Do they need to be fixed? Sure. Great. Political, economic, social, all of these different things. But he's saying Christians were never called to fix those things. Our calling is what? The gospel. Our calling is God changing the hearts of men through the gospel. That is the central theme. It's not about equality It's not about uh, hunger, it's not about uh, fair wages, all of these different things. That is not our call to fix. But then he continues on and he says, Whenever you take away what is central, namely the gospel, and you move that off to the side, what is on the periphery then naturally is going to become central. How many times churches now are, are merely advocating for a sense of of the social justice concept which has then replaced the gospel where the gospel is no longer necessary, no longer centered on what it needs to be, where churches then are doing good things but yet never sharing the gospel with the people they are helping. So what makes you different than any club? What makes you different than all of these other organizations? You carry the message of the gospel. Carry it. If that example wasn't good enough, and we'll move quickly through these remaining couple of verses. Understanding his audience, he moves into the illustration of Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him as for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. He's going back and saying, look, if that example, this, this imaginary one wasn't good enough, let's look at the example of Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. He was already deemed righteous by his faith, yet in Genesis chapter 22, his actions in being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, his obedience, the faith that's worked out in obedience, reveal the genuine nature of his belief. Can salvation be earned? Absolutely not. You cannot earn your salvation. We are not accepted before God in the account of the works that we do. It is not as if we get to heaven and God says, okay, here's the judgment. Let me look at the list of things that you've done in your life and make sure that it's enough. Let me make sure that you have earned enough favor to enter into heaven. And I am so thankful to God that that is not the case. So often in conversations you hear people say, well, I believe I'm a good person. I've done more good than bad. How deceitful of a thought that would be. I mean, I'm not so bold to say something like that. Cannot be earned, but these works are the result of the faith that we have. And they're always going to be attached Back in the first chapter of James, and he's already dealt with this contextually, in verses 22-25 he says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man, beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, He, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. It is not enough to be a hearer and to say, Yes, I have heard the truth and I know that, and do nothing. We are not to be just hearers, but doers also. Is faith by itself enough? If it's not accompanied with the the works, absolutely not. And then we see the illustration here of Rahab in verse 24 and 25. Ye, then, ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Here when he's saying that these works are what it is that is justified, keep in mind the context of what he is saying that there, that has to be the result of the faith that you have. Answering the question, is my faith alone enough to save me if I don't have works? These are those who come and say, I just want to believe that there is a God and have nothing to do. I don't want to uh, ever be at church. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to know who God is. I don't want to do anything for anybody. I just want to know that I'm good to go. This is the person who says, I'm going to profess faith so that I'm saved forever, forever to live in the rest of sin because, hey, there's grace, right? That is not a faith which is saving. Rahab we can look there, and we're not going to turn there. But you can look back at the, what, uh, the faith that she displayed by hiding the spies, of keeping them safe, of, of hearing what it is that God had done and preserving them, of keeping them safe, of being faithful to them. And their, she says that their hearts were melted because they saw the work of God. And then the closing verse, verse 26, Just as a body without a spirit is dead. So faith without works is dead also. What does a dead faith do? What does something dead do? Yeah, You guys are whispering it, right? Nothing. Dead things don't do anything. Why? Because they're dead, right? There you go. Dead people, dead things, don't do anything because they're dead. But this is very strong language. It's not as if he's saying that faith without works is just not ideal, or that faith without works can be improved upon a little bit. It's saying, then you do not have, you do not possess genuine, authentic faith. We're not justified by our good works, but we are justified for those good works. Why is it then that a Christian is to show forth good works? Is it for us to feel better? Is it for us to just say, hey, look at what I've done. The Ephesians passage made it clear, it's not, salvation is not by works so that no one can boast in it. So why then is a Christian to have works accompanying their faith? As is what we see in Matthew chapter 5. So let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father in heaven. It is not about us. Why does a Christian do the things that they do? Why do Christians seek to help the poor, seek to help those who are hungry? Why do Christians gather together, pray for one another, care about each other, show love? has nothing to do with us. But that's the natural outpouring. That is the fruit which is born out of the tree of the faith that we have received. Why do we love? Because God loved us. Why do we show compassion upon people? Because Christ has shown compassion on us. Why do we forgive because we've been forgiven of something far, far greater than any offense against ourselves. Letting your light shine before men so they may see those things and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the entire relationship. Works that are done out of the thanks and the gratitude from our salvation and our desire to show Christ and to show the gospel. Is it wonderful to help feed people and clothe them when they need it? Absolutely. But while you're giving clothes, while you're giving food, while those things are happening, can you talk about who Christ is? Can you talk about God? Can you explain why it is that you care? It's so much more than just doing good things for people just to do good things. This morning I encourage anyone here who has examined themselves to find a faith which has no accompanying fruit. And looking at this, understanding, and we're going to flip over to Matthew chapter 22 just here in closing, it's so important that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And in Matthew chapter 22, this is where we're seeing the wedding feast. Verses 11 through 14, this is the king who has gathered guests together for a wedding. It says, And when a king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then then said the king to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Here he is going to enter into this wedding feast, this individual who goes without the wedding garments, without the proper clothing, to enter into this feast. He's walking in, and the king says, Whoa, how did you get in here? You're not even clothed right. Look at this. And this is not just, well, you're not dressed rightly. This isn't appropriate, um, but you're going to be able to stay anyways. Absolutely not. Get him out of here. What does this remind you of, of being bound and cast out into the darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth? What does that remind you of? I'm going to let you guys answer it. Hell, punishment, because that's a thing, right? It's real, no matter how many times people try to tell you it's not. It is absolutely the reality. Here, it's a person coming, yet he cannot enter into this wedding feast. Why? He was invited, but he's not wearing the right clothes. What clothes does a person have to be wearing to enter into the gates of heaven, to be with Christ forever, to see the face of God forever, to be in glory with Him, to worship Him forever? The clothes of the righteousness of Christ. And guess what? You're not going to go down the street and go buy it anywhere. You're not going to earn it so much that God says, wow, look at this guy. He's really cool. I want to clothe him in the righteousness of my son. That only comes as a result of true, authentic, saving faith. Well, then how are we to be clothed with this righteousness? Believe. Believe upon Christ and His work. Believe that God is who He says He is. Believe that Christ, the Son of God, was beaten and killed and crucified upon the cross, being the atonement for our sins. Repent of your sins. Believe in him. And this is the difference between just a faith that says, I believe that there is God, and the the faith that says, I believe in God, and this is now how it is shown, because I am so thankful for the salvation that he has extended, the salvation I have received, and the works, the fruit that are the result of that faith this text offers such a a firm examination of ourselves to ask ourselves, okay, do I possess a faith which is just faith alone or is it a faith which is accompanied by the works? Being a testimony to that faith, knowing that not only do I just believe because I've been in Sunday school or church all my life and just saying that I know that God is real, but saying, no, I know who God is. I know that I have been redeemed by the blood of of the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world upon the cross, atoning for my sins, I know that that is true. That you have been regenerated, that you desire to know Him, that you desire to seek after Him. And here James is saying for them to examine themselves and showing that a faith without those works is dead. It produces nothing. There is no fruit because the tree is dead. And many, maybe many of you who aren't really good with plants... Nothing grows because you've killed the plant. So, too, our faith needs to be, there needs to be the evidence of that life. Let's pray. Father, this morning we've taken time to to study your word and to, to offer an honest examination with ourselves of seeing that. That faith alone and just believing that there is God and that you are God without any true belief, without any works that show forth that faith, that we understand that that faith is dead, that you've called us to repent and to believe and to trust upon you and upon the work of your Son for salvation. God, it is so apparent throughout the entirety of your word, that no man is made righteous and no man is saved by a result of their works. But as you offer salvation, you offer redemption to us, that those who receive it will show forth those good works as the result of that faith that they have received from you. God, it is an absolutely terrifying thing to... For a person to believe that they, that they know who you are, and that they have been saved, and that they have a faith which saves them, it is completely contradictory to what it is that you said is required. We understand how critical it is that our, that our lives be matching the, the faith that we. Provide.